On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, we're going dog sledding with my dear friend, Tim Paps. Tim and his teams of sled dogs have raced in renowned mushing competitions, including the ultra-extreme Thousand Mile Yukon Quest, as well as the more popularly known Alaskan Iditarod. From his conservative beginnings on the East Coast, Tim's life of adventure has led him to become a professional hunting guide, pilot, and most interestingly, an accomplished dog musher. Dog sledding and the Iditarod are both rich with history, and Tim does a great job taking us along on some of his most exciting days of field. Grab some hot drink and get comfy. It's about to get real cold. You know what's sad? I have spent more days this season waiting to fly or travel, sitting in bad weather, waiting than I have actually hunting and guiding. Yeah. And it's part of it. I mean, it's a very real part of what we do, but when it tips the scales that you're doing more of that than actually hunting, it's painful. Yeah. Add to that having five dogs at home and a girl I love and can't stand to be away from. It's been a tough season for me. It's been a, it's been a wet season. I was thinking about it yesterday that, yeah, we do end up waiting around more than anything else. Yeah. And we have a nice acronym for that. Hua. Hurry up and wait. It's a, it's almost like, I don't want to make it sound cooler than we are, but it's almost like you're on like a special forces team that mm-hmm. just sits there and waits for a commander to be like, go now. And like all your stuff has to be ready on the sidelines and you run out and jump in a helicopter and go. But that call might not come for a couple days. Yeah. And maybe that's a stretch, but sometimes it feels like that because you do. You got to have everything ready to go. Because when you get the green light, got to be ready. It's all systems go, man. Yeah, sometimes it's only a, a matter of minutes. So, what time did you get back last night? Um, man, I think it was like eight thirty. Eight thirty. How was the ride out? Was it raining? It's you know it was raining when we were up in the valley that we were hunting, but once we got once we got down kind of to the lower elevations, it was actually pretty nice. The sun popped out a little bit kind of through the clouds not on us but up on the mountain above us which was pretty cool you prefer uh the mules or the the airplane you know i love i love um hunting with with an airplane because it's just you can get into some cool spots and it's fast but yeah the 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 nice thing about having mules is that you don't have to put a moose on your back they come to the kill site yeah most of the time at least i know you're telling me that we were we were having pillow talk across the bunker last (laughs) night i was in bed and you had just gotten back and were finally kicking your feet up and having a cold beer. And you were just telling me some stories. And you were like, yeah, it was great. I butchered the moose, walked it 10 feet over and hung it up in a tree. And then the mules came right to the tree. Yeah, it was sweet. A little different than, than my previous moose hunt. And that was... A little different than that caribou hunt. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, look, look at my feet, man. They're Are still, they getting uh, better? They're st- well, they're still still pretty banged up. I was surprised you got as banged up as you did. I mean, I guess it was just a combination of the moisture and uh, the distance and time and stuff. But yeah, we have pretty tough feet for on the average spectrum. We do a lot of hiking. Yeah. But if you fill your boots up with water and just keep going for days. Yeah, this is like, it was, I think it was day eight that we got that caribou. And I was, I mean, it had been raining. As you know, you were up, up in the same area. Oh, yeah. It had been raining for like a week. So, yeah, I was thoroughly drenched. It was basically, my boots were like, I had just walked through a creek 
and they were completely saturated. So it was, uh, they weren't going to dry out. So, and I, my feet just started rubbing a lot after that because of the friction, I don't know, caused by the, the water in my boots. I was getting in-reach messages about how hardcore your guys' pack out was and how you and the packer were both getting pretty beat up. Client, good guy, but unable to really help you very much. And I was like, really? Tim's toughest guy I know. Like, how could this be? And then I get out and I see some of the photos of your back and your feet and stuff, <laughs> and it looked like someone had really hurt you. Uh, it was bad. Yeah. Someone hurt me and it was, it was myself and and the mountain (laughs) and the mountain. And I wanted to life-size the caribou. Yeah. We did a life-size caribou. Oh, that's next level. (laughs) I'd have really recommended a European mount at that location. Yeah. I kind of wanted to, but you know, but he was, he's going for his super 10. Yep. Life-sizing all of his super 10 and everything. And, uh, yeah, he only needs a doll sheet to finish it off, I believe. So, oh, cool. It's cool to be a part of that stuff. And the guy that you just killed a moose with the other night, tell me about what he's about to do. Um, he has to, yeah, he has to shoot a Columbia whitetail, and then he'll be done with his North American slam. 29. Yep. Wow. Quite an accomplishment. Something you can't even do anymore because the Quebec Labrador caribou hunting's closed. Yep. For now. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And that, so this, this hunter and I have done three hunts together in the past 10 months. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. And what were those? Um, so I was on a Sitka blacktail deer, uh, down, down on Kodiak with him last November. And then we went on a a nice deer. Yeah. We got a good one. Yep. Um, and then we, let's see, we were on a, a brown bear hunt out on the peninsula this spring. And he got a really nice, really nice bear. I heard you guys had great weather out there. It was incredible. That's like it nuts. didn't seem right. I mean, it was still windy. You're, you know, you're on the peninsula. We're making up for it now. Yeah. <laughs> we're paying the price. This it was just a, a really dry spring, early summer. And now we're reaping the benefits of, uh, of that. The wettest fall ever up here. It feels like to me. Yeah. Well, if you're wondering who I'm talking to, I'm sitting here with one of my best pals and coolest people I know. Mr. Tim Paps. Tim, we met three years ago, um, sight unseen, and we were guiding together up here, and uh, we got to spend a whole season together. So without even ever meeting you before, you and I proceeded to spend two plus months together uh, really constantly. Mm -hmm. We guided moose hunts together. And we proceeded to guide several mountain goats together, uh, several deer, a couple buffalo. Anyways, uh, it was a a forced friendship that I am really proud to have in my life. You're a cool cat. (laughs) And uh, we had some good times out there. You keep a good mental attitude out in the hills, which is nice to, to be with. And... Yeah, we have fun. We were the uh, founding members of the rock group you all probably know and love, Ocular Fluid. Yep. Uh, No, you've probably never heard of Ocular Fluid. Ocular Fluid is a hypothetical death metal band that Tim and I are founding. We haven't released any any new music. Not yet. We're working on the debut album. We just want to make sure it's perfect before we release it. Yeah, it will be good. It's going to be worth the wait. 
Yeah. And you know, uh, if you <laughs> think we're crazy, we are, but when you spend as much time alone in a tent with someone, you come up with some crazy ideas <laughs> like, Hey, if we started a death metal band, what would be a cool name? And when you're caping out an animal and you nick the eyeball, this like clear jelly comes out it's ocular fluid. Yeah. And we were like, damn, that would be a hardcore badass name for a band. I had that happen uh, two days ago. Did you? Yeah. Did you think of me? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, you are a, a man of many skills. You are a very accomplished and successful hunting guide. And you are a pilot in training. You're working on your private pilots. You're yep. about to buy your first Super Cub right now. Yep. And most impressively to me, and what I want to talk about here, is your life and career with sled dogs. Uh, do I call you a musher? Yeah, musher. You're a musher. Yeah. So Tim has a lot of experience with sled dogs here in Alaska and has accomplished the famed Iditarod twice as well as another race you might not know of, but Tim claims is even more hardcore called the Yukon Quest. So would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it depends on the year. I think, you know. Conditions. You, yeah, it's conditions and, you know, there's a lot of variables, but um, the Yukon Quest is definitely a, a challenge for sure. So if you don't know what this is, these are the thousand mile races? Yep, both. These are thousand mile sled dog races. And the, the world famous one is obviously the Iditarod. Um, and you've done that one twice, which I just think is so cool. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about sled dogs, the history of it, but let's back up even further to how you got to this place called Alaska and how you got into sled dogging. Where, where were you born? Uh, I was actually born in Connecticut, um, lived there and, and kind of grew up there and, and in upstate New York. Um, how long were you over there? Uh, you know, I was there until I was, I was 18, I guess. And then I, I moved to Wyoming. Um, but yeah, I kind of grew up like, like pretty similar to the Amish people. Um, different. Would you, would you call it Amish? Do they identify no, no, as Amish? No, no, something, something different. Okay. Um, and it was just kind of like a, a group yeah, oriented community. Yeah. People that kind of live in intentional community and pool their income and have, you know, their own business. They have their own like yeah. farm and you know yeah those they exist all over the place montana we have communities like that called hooderite yeah very similar in ohio where i grew up we have amish yep. um okay so something like that and then uh you peeled away from that yeah yeah i grew up there and just kind of you know growing up i did a lot of reading about the west and like then you know the north I, I loved reading about alaska and by the time i was like 11 i was like i'm, I'm gonna move to alaska do you remember any of uh, the books that kind of fundamentally changed you as a kid? You were just telling me about a cool book you're reading or have recently read about Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the books I was reading as a kid, and I honestly am kind of drawing a blank. What's the one with the sled dog? Call of the Wild? <laughs> Call of the Wild, yeah. Is that with Wait. the famous uh, Balto? Um, Call of the Wild, no. Call of the Wild was a different story, I believe. What's the one? Balto. Balto is kind of who I delivered the the medicine. Yeah, so that was Balto. Yeah. Um, there's a, actually the the dog that was more instrumental in the serum run of 1925 was Togo. 
Togo. Balto kind of got a lot of the credit. Why aren't we singing Togo's praises? Well, we are now. We are. Um, yeah, Disney just made a movie about Togo and kind of corrected oh. the narrative. Um, because, yeah, Balto, actually, I think he only ran like 53 miles. Was it the last 53? Yes, exactly. Yeah, he got that... that uh yeah winner's welcome yeah and and he's a very picturesque dog and so that mm. was just he was just like the togo wasn't was. togo wasn't the uh wasn't the puppy you put on the dog food bag at the time yeah i guess at the time um so yeah yeah balto really got like a lot more credit than than he was due okay so uh, you grew up in connecticut <clears throat> you're in this uh i could call it a, sh- a bit of a sheltered community sure yeah did you hunt and fish uh, I did a lot of fishing. Didn't do much hunting, although I I always wanted to. Okay. Um, like I just it's just not something we we really did. But I did a, a ton of fishing. Um, so I fished a lot for yeah just trout and and. And as a teenager, stuff. started to long for the West. Yep. Me started too. reading about the the West and and uh, yeah. I again just like knew that's I, the place I grew up. I knew I didn't want to be there. Um, so I. Yeah, I you know I let them know and and uh, well, a couple of days after I graduated high school, they're like, "Well, you can go now." And I was like, "Oh okay. wow, it was, a, it was an exit like that. It was a yeah. uh, hey, if if you don't want to be here, you're not welcome here, kind of thing." Yeah, it was yeah, it was kind of like that. I mean, I would have been welcome back for sure, but you know, was, they also you know I was a uh, it was it was blatantly obvious to them that I didn't want to be there, and it was yeah, you weren't it wasn't like a positive situation. For you me. weren't participating <laughs> in the program. I feel yeah. like communities like that are uh, are quick to let the young men go. Yeah, you know, um, for a couple different reasons, but yeah. <laughs> so, where'd you go out west? So, well, I didn't and I didn't have any money. I didn't really have anything. So they actually they they bought me a bus a bus ticket up to Maine. Um, that's not out west. No, it's not out <laughs> west. Um, and they gave me. Yeah, gave me 20 bucks, bought me a bus ticket to Maine, and they're like, hey, there's this guy that lives up there. He's trying to start a community similar to, you know, similar to the one that we live in here, a little, you know, Christian community, and, and he he lived there basically alone with his wife and, like, one other lady, mm-hmm. and that was, like, their community. And so I went up there and helped them with the farm. But this um, was the only network you really had yeah, access didn't, to. Didn't know anyone, didn't know anything. And I was, you know, being a sheltered person, like, I had... I didn't have a lot of knowledge about like the normal life because I, yeah. gr- I had grown up, you know, pretty much com- in a completely different way than, than most people grow up. Right. Um, so I had a lot to figure out. Uh, I was pretty shy, pretty quiet kid. And uh, you're still fairly quiet. I don't think you're shy anymore. No, I don't think I'm shy anymore. No. But I'm, I, yeah, I'd say I'm quiet. I don't. I think you're, I think you're cool, calm, and collected. I, <laughs> I think that's better than shy. Yeah. Calculated. Calculated. Deadly. So you make it up to Maine. To this. So I make it up to Maine. I'm living with this guy and, and his community. And he's, you know, he, he was an old timer, um, pretty hardcore Christian. He used to be a drill sergeant in the Marines and. Kind of, are you finding more of what you're trying to leave? Yes. Yeah. A lot more like a lot more. And I, I was completely secluded. I lived up in like far Northern Maine. Well, there was no, I wasn't close to a town. I was just like out on this farm, like away from everything. And I had really had no way of leaving. Um, so I ended up living there for like nine months. Trapped. Trapped. And, uh, couldn't leave. I had 20 bucks and 
you know, obviously 20 bucks isn't going to do much for what's your day to day. Are you, are you farming? Yeah. yeah. So I was, um, you know, he and he and his wife were pretty old. Um, the other lady that was there became disillusioned with the place and left. She had no money. So I actually gave her my only $20 to, to help her leave. Wow. So uh, yeah, I have no money, but yeah, day to day. I mean, I, they had a bunch of ducks and chickens and so I was taking care of those. I would mow the lawn. I would, you know, cut firewood. I w- I built a greenhouse there, planted a, a big potato garden. Um, he had a little sign sign building company, so I would help him, you know, make signs. What kind of signs? Just like like signs for businesses or okay. you know, like like wooden. Yeah, nice, wooden nice carved wooden signs. business sign. Okay. Yep. Um, a lot of just just like addresses for homes and that kind of stuff. But yeah, not the normal life of an 18-year-old American guy in the yeah. 2000s. Yeah. So I yeah, when I lived there again, I was just like I lived with with a bunch of elderly people and like I had no I had no I didn't interact with anyone my age. Wow. Um and he was he was like pretty bipolar. Mm. And so some days he was he would be like really nice and other days he, you know, would just was just kind of like flying off the handle and it was kind of a bad situation yeah it seems like you tried to leave a situation you didn't like and almost found a worse one yeah i actually actually did for sure um anyway so this 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 family from tennessee ended up moving up to this community to join they wanted to join this little community he started and after like 10 days they're like this dude's nuts you're like tell me about it i've been here for nine months yeah so they left and i i was there and, uh, you know, things kind of got worse. He, he started getting, I don't know, he was just like pretty angry. And like, I was pretty nervous to tell him that I wanted to go. Cause I thought it would, was he a drinker? You know, he did a little, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't was like more that. Just like, I think it was more just, there was other issues yeah. on, on the table that, um, or just on a, uh, a scary power trip of a yeah. disillusioned old man. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, this family moved up, moved up to the community and they again left, uh, pretty quickly. Um, so one day when he was gone, I called him up and I was like, Hey, I'm like, this is a pretty bad situation. I can't leave. I'm afraid to tell him I'm going to leave. Cause I think it would end, you know, poorly, if not dangerously. Um, and they're like, all right, next time he goes to town, like, let us know and we'll come get you. Oh my so, gosh. So yeah, and the next time he was gone, I called him because he would just leave me, and I, I like, I wouldn't go to town with him. I was just at the farm. You were a prisoner. I was kind of a prisoner, and I mean, I, I went to town with him once, and uh, you know, I, I wasn't getting like the basic things I needed, like toothpaste and oh deodorant. Oh my gosh! And, I, and like, I asked him if he could buy that stuff for me in the store, and he freaked out and started like screaming at me in the store, and uh, that was kind of like the the final, you know, the, the final straw. Um, for me being there anyway i called those people up they came and picked me up and i went and lived with them for like three months and you you escaped you ran away yeah i just i just bailed wow did he try to find you um no no i I left him a note and you know i told him what the deal was it was like please please don't try to find me well i was just like i'm i don't want to you know don't want to be here anymore this isn't i'm out yeah basically it's just like i'm gone um so I'm sure he was upset, but it was also like, I didn't really know. I mean, I was 18. I didn't really know how to like make the situation better. I didn't really know. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't able to be 
Yeah, I think I think I honestly think I did the right thing. Just have to like just go. Well, that um, takes a lot of. I mean, you did it once out of the community you were raised in, and then you had to do it again. I think that takes a lot of courage and bravery to leave something like that. I would you say on the average, people in these communities do not do not have the the courage to to walk away. Yeah, you know, I think I mean there there are some people that do, but it was kind of like if you're walking away, you're you're on your own. Like, don't expect anything. From yeah, they uh, what, so. what do you call that? Disabandon or uh, blacklist? There's yeah, a word for it. Excommunicate. That's what it's called. Yeah, it's you know, I wouldn't. I don't want to say it was like excommunication. I actually, you know, I talk to my family now. I I didn't for a long time, but I do. Are they still there? Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. Have you ever been back? Yeah, I've been back twice since I left. Wow. So that's so incredible start let me ask you this i want we'll we'll get back to the tennessee situation but along the way did you grow up with dogs so a little bit i i you know my family never had a dog or anything but we had at that community i grew up we we had some there were some dogs there and i always was like i want a dog you liked dogs yeah i like dogs and then the, the guy i lived with in maine he had two actually dobermans and they were super cool. Like they were, they were pretty fun dogs. Huh? I've never been around Dobermans. I've been around <laughs> boxers. That would probably yeah. be the closest I've been to a Doberman. Yeah, a little different. But I just like enjoyed hanging out with them. I also didn't have anyone else to hang yeah. out. Yeah. So it was like, yeah, I'm that's out a good point. That there's, I mean, your dog. You know, your dogs are always your best friend. But they truly were. Those were your buds. Yeah. So where in Tennessee did you go? So I didn't go to Tennessee. So this family was from Tennessee. Again, they moved up to Maine. And then when they left, they just moved like an hour and a half from Maine, okay. from, from the place. That I makes moved. more sense. So it was easier for them. To, yeah, I they, like, they rented a house. coming up from Tennessee like, to rescue you. It's going to take a minute. Yeah, so they, yeah, they were in Maine, not, not far away. And that's Got why it. they were able to just drive over and pick me up. Um, so I went and lived with them. Uh, and yeah, while I was with them, I got my driver's license because I had never really had that opportunity. Is, wow yeah i was eight yeah 18 um i got a job washing dishes at a cafe and they had yeah they had a computer and stuff so i immediately started looking for job opportunities like in wyoming montana colorado utah mm -hmm. um, i applied at a bunch of like fishing outfits and uh let me ask you this ranches. did you have a high school degree yeah i had i had a high school diploma you did okay yeah um and anyway, I, yeah, I started sending out job applications all over the place. Cause I was, like, yeah, like I just need to get away from all of this. And, uh, yeah, surprisingly, like almost every application, well, er every job I applied for, they, they, they wanted to hire me. So that was, it doesn't cool. surprise me. I know you and <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. You're a very, uh, qualified candidate for probably any of the, those jobs you were applying for. Yeah, it was it was good. Um, so what'd you pick? Well, I I ended up going to Lander, Wyoming, um, and started working for uh, a, a guest ranch, and they they did a lot of like packing, and that was kind of what I was interested in was was like doing long trips in the mountains on horseback. I had Wil grown up with horses a little bit. Wilderness pack trips. Wilderness pack trips. Um, we did a lot of uh, resupply trips for like Knowles. Are you familiar? Oh with yeah, Knowles? yeah. Is that National like uh, or leadership school? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like they take kids yeah, out on hardcore exactly. backpacking expeditions. Yep. Yeah. And they learn like leadership skills and like wilderness skills. So we would bring them food every 10 days on their month long okay. trips. Um, 
Yeah. Packed a lot of climbers, fishermen. And then, so that, that outfit I worked for, they had uh, a guiding business too. They did, they did elk hunting, uh, mule deer, antelope. Um, so that's kind of how I started getting into guiding and yeah, anyway, I kind of backtracking when I was still in Maine. I, I, yeah, I was there for about three months with this family, got my driver's license, worked at this cafe, washing dishes, saved up enough money to get a Greyhound bus ticket to Wyoming. Oh my gosh. And I think I paid like $125 to get all the way from Bangor, Maine to Casper, Wyoming. Balling on a budget. Yeah. It took me five days. Oh boy. (laughs) That was a, it was quite a journey feels like traveling around alaska <laughs> yeah it was pretty cool though i mean like it, you know it was eye-opening i met a lot of very, oh i bet this was mind-blowing to you yeah there was like people smoking weed in the back room bathroom of the of You're like the i bus. think this greyhound just hit a skunk yeah it wasn't a skunk no i i knew at the time <laughs> i knew what it was but <laughs> crazy yeah i was sitting on the bus for a while next to this dude that just got out of prison um yeah, I had an interesting conversation with him. Are you getting a heavy dose of society and reality on this trip to Wyoming? Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, dude, it was crazy. So you get into the guiding out there. Uh, how long did you spend in Wyoming? So, man, I was there f- probably, I, I well, I, it, I was there for like four years straight before oh. I started working up in Alaska. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I, I worked for that, that outfit there. And yeah, did basically did summer and, and fall trips. My first, my first winter there, um, I saved up like, I don't know, like $3,500 and I was like, sweet. I got 3,500 bucks. Like, yeah. I'm going to Rich. New Zealand. Going to New Zealand. Yeah. So like, and I was 19, you know, I was like $3,500 is a lot of money. Yes. I'm going, absolutely. To, I'm going to New Zealand. So I went to New Zealand for three months. Whoa, <laughs> man, you got a taste of adventure and just yeah. couldn't let go of it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was going to be like enough to travel around. I was wrong. Uh, so, what did you end up? Uh, I actually ended up getting a job down there working working with a horse trainer. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of cool. It was kind of you know right along the things I'd been doing. South and, Island, North Island. I was on the North Island, Gisborne. Uh, Most east. people go to the south, though, right? Yeah, because it's like more mountainous. Um, I had I had worked with uh, a guy the previous summer in wyoming and he was from yeah this this area in new zealand so that's kind of why i went down there and actually two of the guys i worked with in wyoming ended up going down we so we all kind of went down at the same time so you had a bit of a a bit of a crew yeah a little bit of a crew but yeah those guys were a little older they had like money so they ended up traveling around but i was just you know basically broke by the time i got there i think i spent like 1500 of my dollars on on the plane ticket plane ticket of course yeah Anyway, so I, yeah, I started working with this horse trainer and I, I just worked basically the whole time I was down there. So I didn't end up traveling around too much. Um, did you like New Zealand? I loved it. You did? Yeah. I had a blast. I don't want to go. Yeah. And I could drink down there. I was 19. Oh boy. Go to the bar. The dog is off the leash. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was good. (laughs) And so you're working with horses in New Zealand. You said you spent about three months there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I came back and was back at that that ranch i was working at and again yeah i did like four four summers there um so you're really kind of building a foundation in equine yeah i I guess the dogs have not come into the picture yet correct yeah yeah the dogs were were kind of later on your uh your wrangling resume is yeah your strongest 
uh, feature so far. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That was kind of what I was building, I guess at that point I was just enjoying life. I was just like trying to, you're good at that. You still do that. Yeah. I still get after it. Yeah. That's why I guide hunts. Yeah, man. People, I mean, guiding can be painful, but at the same time we get to go on once in a lifetime hunts eight times a year or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. That's pretty special. Yeah. I, I definitely feel fortunate to be able to do the things that I do. Um, so you're back in Wyoming. Yeah. Back in Wyoming. And I, I tried going to school for a while. Um, college. Yeah. I went to university of Wyoming in, in Laramie and just, you know, it just wasn't really my thing. I hear Laramie is a lot of fun. Yeah. I had cool, a great cool time. time. Never been there. Yep. Had, I have still have friends down there. Um, made a lot of friends. So that was kind of cool. You know, it was good for me to kind of go experience being a young person. Yeah. Um, got the fruits of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Got into skiing and snowboarding, uh, ended up working actually at the little ski area down there. Uh, Oh, you did. So that was, yeah. And that, that kind of became like a, something I really got into. You liked skiing or you snowboarding? Yeah. Uh, I did a little bit of both, but mostly snowboarding. And what was Um, your job at the resort? So my first winter I was a lift operator and then I became a ski patroller, which I, uh, actually did on the snowboard. So border patrol. (laughs) <laughs> is a bit of that uh oh that's funny uh is a bit of ski patrolling like search and rescue first aid kind of stuff yeah it's mostly like hey this person's in a bad situation let's, yeah let's either escort them down you know or uh, i mean it's it's really more of like a medical thing like if you're you're going to be dealing with people that are do you ever see that uh lines. that television show the horn no it's about the search and rescue team on the matterhorn in switzerland it was on Red Bull TV. If you get a chance to look it up, it is the most badass show. It's about the search and rescue team on the Matterhorn, and they—it's uh, pretty hardcore search and rescue out of a helicopter. And there's this badass older guy named Axel, who's the doctor. And anyways, that's what I like to picture you were doing. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it was probably quite that hardcore. But. Yeah, maybe not. But anyways, yeah. go ahead. It was mostly like dealing with like cold kids you know it was i worked at a pretty small mountain i mean we did have a couple spinal issues when i was there it wasn't no no severe injuries like the one the worst thing that i saw was a a femur fracture i broke my leg skiing when i was nine oh really oh yeah which bone or which bones it was a spiral fracture of my femur oh damn yeah i had a cast from my toes to my groin for like three months damn dude it's terrible. That's brutal. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, you get you get uh, like a rod in there or anything? No, I didn't. I uh, hey, feel free to get at your coffee. Yeah, I need to Tim's trying to very very carefully navigate around his microphone to drink some of his coffee right now. I will say this about you: very, you're very uh, thoughtful, generous person. A good example is that is you trimmed your mustache right before this, so it wouldn't yeah. interfere with the audio. I didn't even ask you to do it. Yeah, I know. I mean, I I could barely talk with the amount of mustache I had. So it was like, yeah, this thing needs to come off. You're two months into guiding. Yeah. And, uh, I just looking, let it go. I, we're looking rough. I was like, you know, I'm going to wait till I'm done with my second moose hunt to trim this thing off. Yeah. Big old caterpillar. You bang that hunt out quick. Day one up there. Day one, hour and a half of hunting. God. It was great. All right. Ski patrolling in Wyoming. What's next? Um, so then, yeah, then I, yeah, I did that for a while. I ended up breaking my, my uh humerus in my left arm and ouch you know that that kind of took a damper 
yeah, I, I didn't have any insurance or anything. So I, I ended up spending like almost 30 grand on getting my arm fixed. What? Uh, which I, of course I didn't have. Right. I was going like, like, so I, I paid it off for a long time. Um, that's a broken system, right? There. Yes. Well, it was, you know, bef- before health insurance was required. So I didn't, but you know, I got fixed and slowly paid it off. It took, took a long time, but yeah. Um, yeah, I was just like, I don't know. I, I kind of want to do something else. So I, I went that next summer I was back, uh, in, in Lander doing, yeah, horse trips. Working on the horse trips again. And I worked with a guy that fall. I was guiding. At this point, I was guiding hunts for, for that outfit, guiding elk hunts. And uh, one of the guys I guided with was running dog tours up in Dubois. North dog, dog tours. That that sounds like a mountain lion hunt to me. Okay. Dog sledding tours. Dog sledding tours in where in Wyoming? So uh, actually up on Togety Pass. Togety Pass. And he was so. taking tourists yeah taking tourists on, on like 10 on mile trails like yeah rips around in the hills yeah and you see this stuff uh if you if you kind of travel around alaska or jackson hole or yep. other parts of the west every once in a while you do see west yellowstone's real popular with it mm-hmm. uh you know dog sled dog sledding tours yeah and so, so you knew somebody doing it yeah so I, I knew this guy and he he worked for for this guy named billy snodgrass and uh, he he raced in the Iditarod like four times, I think five times. Billy Snodgrass, that's yeah. a a name that sounds like a character in a movie. Yeah, he he is a character. Okay, he should be a character in a movie. So he was an Iditarod musher. Yeah, so he raced in the Iditarod, had like hundred dogs and uh, maybe more. Um, wow. So we would take you know like eighty of his dogs up to Togety Pass for the winter. Where is Togety Pass? Togety Pass is between. Um, you know where Dubois, Wyoming is? I do. So between Dubois and Jackson, or between Dubois and uh, Moran Junction, which is just north of Jackson. Yeah, got it. Yellowstone. It's the mountain pass there. And that's so. where he would take a bunch of his dogs and yep. run a business. Yep, exactly. people out on rides. Yeah, and so most of the people were, you know, skiing in Jackson, and they would take a van up from Jackson and, and go on a, a dog sledding trip. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into dog sledding. And then... So what were you doing? What were... What were your responsibilities right away? So I, yeah, I went up, uh, kind of in fall and start help, started helping training, training dogs. And at by the that kennel. Yeah. At the kennel down in Dubois. And that basically just means like conditioning the dogs to get them prepared for running tours throughout the winter. So exercise. Yep. So we were, we were running dogs with four wheelers. We'd attach a, a gang line, which is the line that the dogs are kind of attached to. Um, so we, yeah, we would, we would run like 12 dog team, uh, with a four wheeler and just a few miles just to kind of like keep them moving. And just to clarify, they're not pulling the four wheeler, are they? Uh, I mean, they definitely are, but but we have slowly driving the four wheeler and they are just getting lined out and and exercising in front of you. Yeah. And actually if, if we did, (coughs) if we just had, had it in neutral with the engine off, I bet they could pull it. They'd pull it so hard that you just wear out your brakes. Oh my gosh. So you keep the engine on actually as a form of resistance. Engine braking. Yeah. yeah. So you keep it in like second and third, depending on what you're doing. Sure. Uh, I usually keep it like third or fourth gear just to create, just have like the engine compression holding the dogs back a little bit. And you're getting these dogs ready for winter work. Yep. Um, so that's kind of how I learned like the basics of dog sledding was, was actually on a four wheeler. Once it started snowing, we took all the dogs up to Togety Pass and started running dog trips. And I, I did a couple practice runs uh with a sled with some of the other guides that worked there 
I think I actually only did two. And then they're like, all right, tomorrow's your first tour. And I was like, oh, damn. Three to the wolves. Yeah. Yeah, and I still remember that. Dive in head first. I had, uh, yeah, I had two guys from New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. And want to go on a dog sled, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, I had like this little sled. So one of the guys was sitting in the other guy's lap. It was pretty funny. So but it went good. Like, I had a great time with him. We went I'm, for like a 10 mile run. And you did. Okay. Yeah. Um, good. A couple questions. What, what type of dogs are these? So these are all Alaskan Huskies. Um, and what is an Alaskan Husky? It's not the big fluffy Husky that everyone would think of. You say Husky. Yeah. And actually all the dogs that I'm going to talk about basically from now on are, are going to be Alaskan Huskies. Okay. It's pretty much what everyone uses for dog sledding now, just because they are better. They're just better. We designed them for this. Yeah. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're fast dogs. They're bred for their endurance, their speed, their athletic ability, rather than to be kind of fluffy and have pretty eyes and stuff. So, and they're not, they're not huge. No, they're, they're actually pretty small. And because of that, their endurance is a little bit better. Um, but yeah, so Alaskan Huskies are, they're not a purebred dog. Uh, again, they're, they're basically like Siberian Huskies that people have crossbred with different hounds, mm-hmm. uh, German short hairs, um, kind of anything people. Yeah. People have bred all sorts of dogs together to give their, their dogs a little bit more of an, so egg. Alaska Huskies kind of a, a mutt. It's a mutt. Yeah. They're, they're mutt dogs. We call them like designer mutts because they've been bred for a very like specific that. purpose. I like that. Um, and they're, they're really good at what they do and they're, yeah, they're crazy high energy dogs that want to run constantly. And How many dogs are you, you tying up to the sled on these Wyoming? So those, boards? those trips I was doing like 12 dogs, 12 dogs. Yeah. And if I'm picturing this correctly, there's, they kind of run two at a time. Yep. Like Santa's reindeer kind of uh yeah, exactly. double stacked up in front of you. But you have a lead dog? Yeah, or two. Or uh two. generally two. I mean twice as many eyes, twice as many ears, twice as many brains. You know, it's just better to have two. Well, I wanna there's, there's... I wanna talk about the the social construct of that and what makes a good lead dog, but let's get further down yeah, the story there, here. I mean there there are a lot of dogs that I would prefer to run kinda on their own, but um often, you know, I was trying to like train a new dog to be a leader. So I would just pop it up there with a a dog that was a really good leader. Mm -hmm. And then that older dog is going to kind of push or pull the younger dog around depending on the commands that, that I'm giving. Um, so they're going to pick up a little bit more by being up in front with a, with a good lead dog. So So you're cutting your teeth in Wyoming with all of this, learning how to be a musher, learning how to train dogs, work a kennel, um, and everything that goes with that. But these are day trips. Yeah. Uh, I was actually doing two per day. Okay. So I was doing two 10-mile trips every day. So they did a ride. It's still a way yeah, off. Yeah, way there. off. Like never – I honestly like had thought – at that point, you know, the guy I was working for, Billy, he he raced and I did a ride. And I was like, man, that would be crazy. But I like, I don't know if I have it in me, like a 1,000 miles. This is that. like you're playing football at a junior college dreaming of the NFL. Yeah. And, and it, again, I wasn't even like – at that point, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. I was just like, that's crazy. That's cool. That's yeah. really cool. I don't know if I could do that, but like, yeah, that looks pretty cool. Um, yeah. So I, I did, I did trips there all, yeah, all winter. And I don't know, I had all, again, had always thought about Alaska and, uh, I had, I actually worked with some people that winter that had worked up here during the summertime doing helicopter dog sledding tours outside of Juneau. Wow. 
And I was like, that sounds cool. So, so they got like a remote camp yep. where uh, this sounds pretty bougie. Pretty, it sounds like a fancy dog sled tour to be helicoptered in and then go on a dog sled ride. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is for sure. They're, they're expensive mainly because helicopters are involved. Yeah. Um, God, so those things scare me. Yeah. They're fun. I love them. I know, but when the motor stops, they drop. You know, they, they actually don't. They really, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's enough like momentum, um, from the helicopter falling that it's going to spin the, 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 you go tell Kobe Bryant. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That was a bad joke. Sorry. That was, that was brutal. Rest in peace. Um, um Anyway, so you knew some people working out of Juno. Um, yeah, so I, I had worked with these people all winter and um, got in contact with the general manager of the company. And I was like, hey, I'd, I'd love to work up there this summer. And he was like, cool. Yeah. Great. He's like, normally I would interview you, but like you're running tours right now for Billy. And I'm sure you had some good referrals. Yeah. So, yeah, I basically got hired on. So that that summer I moved up to Juno and started running helicopter dog sledding trips. So, and it's kind of the same thing you were doing, but more remote. Yeah. So we, we basically lived up in a camp, um, that we would set up prior to our summer season. Um, we would fly dog houses, tents, uh, basically an entire camp for like over 200 dogs and 20 employees and the guests come and go exactly yeah from, in helicopter from the yeah. spot so i would i would go up there and i would basically we would, we would work um six days on and would have one day off and we'd fly down to town for our days off you know dog sledding sounds like a winter time thing to me mm-hmm. why are you doing this in the summer um so this was this was basically all around the the cruise ship Ah, season. industry. Yeah, that's when it's that's part of when the, the customers were around. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of people traveling to Alaska in the summertime on cruise ships, especially places like Juneau. Um, it's a pretty big, pretty big port, and yeah, there's a lot of business. Um, so we were on a glacier about 13 miles from the the toe of the Mendenhall Glacier. So you're using sleds, not wheeled. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So we're kind of in the accumulation zone of the glacier where there's enough snow throughout the winter that it's going to stay there all, all summer long. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, and yeah, eventually, you know, get down to the toe of the glacier out there. There is not nearly as much snow, but up there in the, we were, I think like 30, 3,500 feet. Um, there's enough snow up there that it's just there. How many dogs were you keeping at this camp? So we actually had 280. Total. Oh my God. Yeah. A lot of dogs. I think five's a lot. Yeah. And I, I, I had 35 dogs that I was mushing and then I had um, a handler helping me. So you're like personally responsible for a team of 35 dogs. Yep. And so those dogs, uh, I would kind of rotate around throughout the day. So yep. they were all running, you know, every day. But that that's your squad. You're feeding them, yep. caring for them, uh, working the everything. Yep. But you don't own them. Correct. The, yeah. The, they are uh, actually the dogs I ran my first year were from Montana. Which is this kind of news to me. This is kind of normal in the in the mushing community that there's usually a kennel and a, a kennel owner who maybe was a previous famed dog sledder or something, or maybe not. Sure. Yeah. Or has a tour operation, and then they and need then their dogs to stay active throughout the summer, so they send hire them to, people like you. Yeah. So, or they 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 would like send them to Alaska. They're like, hey, these dogs oh, wow. can be active all summer up in one of these remote camps. And it's all, it's really good for the young dogs, especially. How young can you start them? Um, I mean, it's all, 
you know, it's all part of the tr- like their whole life. They're yeah, kind of you get them going right away. Yeah, so I mean, as far as like conditioning, they're not doing any longer running until they're like a year old. Yeah, that's so, about what I've guessed, maybe two. But yeah, two. I mean, that's when they're that's when they could like race. And what's probably. a lifespan of a good sled dog? Um, we had one, and she lived till she was seventeen. Oh wow, that's long. Yeah, that's really long. Yeah. Yeah, and and actually because of their turns out exercise is exercise good for you. really good food and a little genetic diversity, you know it's it's good. What's uh what's really good food? Because um, you can't be buying IMS for all these things. No, no. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of companies that are producing pretty high end dog food, um, and most of it's going to be really high in fat, really high in protein, like thirty two percent fat, thirty two percent. You got to buy this stuff by the pallet, though. We would buy it by the shipping container. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. So you're in charge. This is, uh, in Wyoming, did you not have as much responsibility? You know, I think I had 20 dogs in my, in my little yard in Wyoming. So it was a little bit more, it's kind of step up. Yeah. Um, but it was good. And I, I got paid per tour. I was running a ton of tours. So we were, they were really short. They're only like a mile and a half. It's good work. So yeah, it was good. I was making, making like real money and yeah, it was kind of getting me ahead a little bit. And, uh, you liked it. I liked it. And so that winter, let's see what did I do my first winter. Oh, I, I actually went back to Wyoming. I got my CDL hmm. cause I was like, Oh, I'll just be a truck driver as a backup plan. Well, like up on the slope. Yeah. I was actually going to work in North Dakota hmm. at the time. It was booming then. It was booming. And I was like, yeah, I, I knew some people that were up there making a bunch of money. And I was like, Oh, I could go do that. I got my CDL and I was like, I don't think I want to do this. Yeah, well, truck driving wasn't for you. It just You're like there's no dogs in front of this thing. Well, it just like I was just like maybe a little bit later in life when I'm like I don't know not as excited about doing stuff in the outdoors. But yeah, that still hasn't happened. So, so. <laughs> when did you come back to Alaska? Uh, so the next summer I came back to Alaska. Um, did basically the same thing. I actually brought the dogs I was working with in Wyoming all the way up to Alaska for the you summer. You drive them up. Yeah. 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 We brought them all the way up. Um, so that was cool to be running the dogs. I, you know, year round basically. Man, you gotta um, get, can, do you, do you build a super close relationship with each one of these things? I get oh, so yeah. connected to dogs. Completely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then I would go guide in the fall. So it was, it was like a pretty much a full year. I would do summer, summer dog sledding tours, winter dog sledding tours, and then guide hunters in the fall. Um, when I was working, in Alaska, I, I worked with a few people that had, had raced the Iditarod mm-hmm. and like, I would hang out with those guys and I was like, Hey, this is kind of cool. So let's talk about the Iditarod for a minute. Mm-hmm. What is the Iditarod? So it's a, it's a 1000, uh, I guess, technically it's like 1,049 miles, but in all reality, it's about, it's about a thousand miles. Um, the 49 cutting corners. Out well, there? no, the 49 was actually assigned as kind of like a number because it's Alaska, the 49th state. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, there, there was a couple of years where it was probably over a thousand and forty nine miles. And then more recently, I would say it's closer to a thousand and it just varies year to year, depending on what where the trail falls. Yeah. Where the trail goes, um, you know, what parts of rivers freeze up. Sometimes certain parts of rivers don't freeze up. So you're going on yeah. like an overland trail, which may make the trail 50 miles shorter or longer. Where does it start? Where does it end? So starts in Anchorage, Alaska, and goes to Nome. That's the fake start. Yeah, historically. Well, yeah, I guess uh, the, the Seward. Yeah, the the historic Iditarod Trail um, does start in Seward. 
And why is it historic? Tell me about the, before it was a race, which what started in the sixties or seventies? Yeah. 73. Started in 73. Uh, it was to commemorate this historic trail that these guys were running back in the day doing what? So, uh, I mean, actually a lot of it was for gold, like transporting gold out of, you know, Iditarod out of Iditarod, which is a mining town in mining town. Yeah. And I think at one point, like 10,000 people live in the, in the town of Iditarod. Wow. It's now a ghost town. Yeah. No one lives there. Yep. Um, and they, yeah, I don't remember exactly how much gold, but it was like $30 million of gold at the time. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. It's a couple billion. It's probably like $10 trillion. <laughs> um, Inflation. I've heard, I've read some things on the amount of weight, amount of gold that these sleds were pulling. It was yeah. like tons tons literally tons like thousands of pounds of gold yeah yeah it's crazy they were putting in these sleds and these dogs it's the only way yeah because there's no bush plane the yeah, super cub was not out piper had not come out with the super cub yet yeah no one had <laughs> so sled dogs uh were the primary transportation around remote alaska and a lot of parts of the world uh but we'll stay on alaska and so that that's where they really got famous is going to and from Iditarod, getting the gold out of Iditarod. Yep. And it was a hardcore, long, long trail that had to go up and over mountains. Yeah. A few different ranges. To get to the to sewer to ship it out of here. Yep. And then did the sear the, the Balto story kind of make it more so, famous? Yeah. That brought sled dogs to light. Yeah, definitely. Um, and actually, yeah, so there was a diphtheria epidemic in Nome in 1925. What's dip? Diphtheria? Diphtheria. Diphtheria, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I honestly don't really know exactly. It's like the plague or something. Yeah, it's kind of like the plague. It spreads easily. Um, and, uh, yeah, a bunch of people died. I think it was like, I, I mean, I don't actually really remember. I want to say it was like seven people total that actually died but a lot of people got sick <laughs> there's only 15 people there so that's pretty <laughs> no bad. Nome was a big town at that point uh, actually a lot of the alaskan villages were, were because bigger. of the gold yeah were bigger back then than they are even now yeah uh, like i did around that's uh, interesting to think about yeah yeah it's kind of wild um anyway so they basically needed a serum for the, the diphtheria epidemic spreading through the Nome area so they shipped some up from Seattle to Seward. And from there, it actually traveled by train up to uh, just south of Fairbanks. Okay. And from there, it was relayed all the way to Nome. Uh, On dog sleds. Yeah, dog <clears throat> So it wasn't one team going all the way. It was like 20 different teams kind of just relaying the medicine all the way. Um, but yeah, was, was it one musher, though? No, multiple musher. Oh, it was. Yeah. It just turns out the guy that crossed the finish line got all the glory. Yeah, Balto. Um, I don't like Balto anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm a Togo man. Well, you'll have to go to Disney Plus and watch the movie Togo. <sighs> I don't want to have to do that. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's a good. It's a good correction. And what year was that? Uh, 1925. So this is kind of the paid like dog sledding had never been more important in the, those years in the early 1900s when yep. we're getting a lot of gold out of Alaska, all of a sudden these sled dogs saved the day in Nome. Yep. Um, Very celebrated. And with the dawn of bush planes. And snow machines. And snowmobile. Okay, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Dog sledding kind of goes away. Basically. A lot. Like we don't need them anymore. Yeah, in like the 50s, 60s. 
starts disappearing like pretty rapidly and people still had dogs and they were running you know trap lines with dogs and uh in the prospect the the gold rush ended gold rush ended yeah so things just kind of changed a little bit in alaska and uh yeah i mean people started using snow machines because you don't have to feed them every day you can put them away for the summer and not have to worry about them and yeah uh, yeah the sled dog kind of started disappearing um which is why the iditarod the iditarod sled dog race was formed was to kind of commemorate that way of life and keep the tradition of dog sledding around who started it uh, a guy by the name of Joe Reddington. And what was what was his goal? Um, he Besides basically... To commemorate this. Yeah. I mean, he was trying to keep the tradition of dog sledding around. Like, he didn't want it to disappear because that was something that he was part of. And uh, he kind of, you know, he, he was thinking, how cool would it be to have a 1,000-mile race? Yeah. And it's just something that he had in his mind. And so they, they tried it out. It's kind of a small group of guys, though, in the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty small. Um, they, they put in a trail, got some funding to make the race happen and they, they did, they made it happen in 1973. And if you look at a map at Alaska, the Iditarod trail is marked across the state yeah. on most maps. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it walk me through the route. So, uh, basically the, there's a, well, at, in 1973, the race went from Anchorage all the way to Nome. It doesn't go like that quite anymore. Um, now we do like a ceremonial start in downtown Anchorage. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. It's basically because of, I mean, where we're sitting here in Eagle river, like there's a lot of roads. Yeah. The snow isn't really the same as it was back then. Yeah. I heard they had to train, bring snow in on a train for some of these ceremonial starts yeah. in recent years. Yeah. My first year, there was no snow down here. I actually did my last couple of runs prior to the start of the, I did it out on a four wheeler because there, where I was living, there was like barely any snow, which is crazy. So you leave Anchorage, where does the route go? So then it heads, um, I guess at that point it would have gone up to basically Wasilla, big lake area, and then heads, heads out to the, towards Yentna station, um, cross the big Susitna river and then up the Yentna river, Squintna, um, and then up into the Alaska, the Alaska range. So then you're heading up to, that's the, the largest mountainous hurdle of the whole route. Yeah. Biggest, biggest mountain range in, in North America, really. Um, but the, the pass that we go over, uh, rainy pass is, it's really not that high. It's like 3,400 feet, but the mountains are big. They're still, right. I, mean, I think you've spent some time up there too. I have. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, they're, they're big mountains, still a lot of work, um, pretty technical sled driving going going down the dalzell gorge and down to the tatina river you told me that's the most dangerous part of the whole race yeah for sure there's some pretty big drop-offs um and are you in a, on the, the 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 dalzell slot or canyon are you in like a slot canyon a frozen creek yeah you know at the top of the gorge it's not that bad and you know you're just kind of following the creek down but eventually as you get further down closer to the tatina river it it does become like a a slot canyon you're like in it you're in the canyon and what's dangerous about that uh it's just really tight turns and you know depending on the year it could be really completely fine there could mm -hmm. be a lot of snow and it's just going to be a really fun dreamy ride and other times it's going to be terrible and terrifying because it's just you know the snow is melted you're on ice you're going over tree stumps and yeah you're going to tip your sled over and crash into a tree and you know fall off and slide into the river something can happen um, yeah, I'd say. Yeah, especially when you're on conditions like that, where it where it is, 
uh, really icy and the ground is hard, it's very difficult to control a dog team. And, uh, you know, when I first started racing, we were able to have 16 dogs on the dog team. And so my first year I had a 16 dog team of young dogs go, pulling me down the Dells Hill and I was just ripping. They were hot to trot. They were hot to trot. Oh and boy. So they're pulling you down this canyon. You got a brake on that thing? We do have, we do have brakes, but when you're getting pulled downhill on glare ice brakes don't work very well yeah so yeah it's it's terrifying wow um yeah there's there's definitely some shit your pants moments i bet so from there you go to uh the famed roan station yep which is on the banks of the cuspiquim yeah the south fork of the cuspiquim uh from there to the village of Nikolai, and then mcgrath to katna kind of heading out into um, interior Alaska at this right. point. Uh, and then to a checkpoint called Ofer. Um, from there, the, the trail actually splits. Is that your halfway point? Yeah, uh, a little bit further. I heard there's a hist- uh, thing at the halfway point. First person there gets some gold. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the... There's a few awards that are given out, um, and that is one of them, yeah, for the halfway point. Uh, but yeah, at just just at Ofer, the trail splits. There's a northern route, which we would take on... on years ending with an even number um and then the odd years we would take the southern route hmm. so then so actually the race only goes through the checkpoint of Iditarod that that ghost ghost town we were talking about on odd ending years hmm. um and actually what, I've, why they do that why why not uh, just, have just one to, route just to kind of incorporate some of the places that wouldn't normally be it's like to include some of these other yeah. villages and yep. stuff i see yep indeed um and yeah, you know, during the race, a lot of dog food is shipped out to these places, and whatever we don't use is given to the village to for them to use. Is you know, and this is the biggest thing that happens all year in these places. You yeah, guys, for sure. you guys roll through these villages, and you're rock stars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, occasionally, but it's also like a lot. You know, they're used to kind of living living their their lives out there, and it's just like bam, suddenly there's a ton of stuff going on. So yeah, maybe not everybody likes it. Yeah. It's just change of pace. So you headed west out of there, and the end is Nome. And then, yeah, so we're basically we get, you know, um, again, when the, the trail splits, you're either heading to the southern Yukon River or you're heading up a little further north to the checkpoint of, like, Ruby. And then following the Yukon River, both both the northern and the southern route um, connect again in the village of Caltag. From there, there's, like, an 83-mile rip to the coast of Alaska, uh, the village of Unalakleet. Is that south of Nome? Yes, south and east. Um, right. And then, yeah, and then from Unalakleet, we kind of follow the coastline up um, and then head out onto a spit to the village of Shaktulik. And then from there, we go actually across the frozen Norton Sound to the village of Koyuk and then uh, basically head out head out west to Nome, wow. the coastline. So, uh, back in the day, how long did it take somebody to race the Iditarod? So first, first year, a uh, guy by the name, name of Dick Wilmarth, he won the race and it was just over 20 days, 20 days crossing Alaska with his dog sled team. Yep. And second year it was like 20 days and then it was like 22 days. And then from there it started changing. What's the record today? Uh, so Dallas CV holds the record and I don't remember exactly what it is just over, just over seven days. Um, but 
That how, said, how in the world? What has changed? Well, that that said, that the route that that Dallas raced, well, that everyone raced that year was was different. So that was in was that 20, 2021. and because of the pandemic, the race basically went to the checkpoint of Iditarod uh-huh. and then back to Willow, which is was the true start of the race. So it was the the route was still different. a thousand miles. No, it was shorter. Um, and that's, that's why that record was set, but the true, that doesn't, that sounds like there's a big asterisk next to that one. I I feel like there should be, I think if you like Google, you know, like the true Iditarod trail to Nome, what would the record be? So it's still short. It's still half. It's like eight. So yeah, actually his dad, uh, Mitch CV, I think, I think he finished in eight days, three hours, but that was also not the true the true race though. So basically what, what happens if there's not enough snow in the Alaska range or if certain rivers don't freeze properly, they got to reroute. They, they actually start the race in Fairbanks uh, and follow the Yukon river. Uh, what is it then? Of, like 700 miles? No, it's still pretty long, but it's much flatter. Okay. Much flatter. <clears throat> so the, it just either way, things are getting faster. Things are getting faster. Yeah. People are starting, you know, originally people are, are breeding like kind of bigger, fluffier style Alaskan Huskies. Yeah. And didn't somebody go to Russia and bring back some dogs at one point, some, uh, like the birth of the Alaskan Husky started with some old school musher going to Russia and getting some of these giant dogs. Yeah. Actually Leonard Seppla, who was part of the, the, he was probably the, he was the most instrumental part of the, the serum run of 1925. His Siberian Huskies were actually from Siberia and he lived in Nome and raised them there. Yeah. Um, so he, he had pretty famous dogs and they, you know, they traveled. He went over there and bought like a hundred dogs and like brought them back. I remember. It it was something big. Um, so the dogs are changing. The dogs are changing. Yeah. People are starting to breed, um, faster dogs into their dogs. Like they're breeding, they're breeding different types of hounds. Um, shout out to the hound dogs. Yeah. Hound dogs. Love. I have one too. Love. I know you do. Yeah. Good. God. I miss them. Yeah, me too. So um, we're breeding faster dogs into these bloodlines. The dogs are getting smaller, which is more advantageous for endurance. Endurance, and yeah, staying up on top. I mean, okay. there's there's a there's a few different. You know, if you're in the mountains, it's really nice to have big, strong dogs. But if you're on the flats, actually, the smaller dogs tend to do a little bit better. Makes sense. Um, they're just lighter on their feet. Makes sense. You know, yeah. When we're when we're racing out there, the dogs will get sore feet. They're going to get sometimes sore wrists just from the constant running, you know, constant pounding, especially on the, the harder ground, but the smaller dogs, it's just less weight. So yeah. they, they don't, they often don't deal with as many issues as some of the bigger dogs. Right. Um, and they're compact. I could carry one in my sled, give them a little break, pop them back in the team. And do you run the whole dogs, the whole race? Is it one team of dogs? Or are you yeah. rotating dogs? Are you getting fresh dogs no, along the way? No, no. That's, um, not, that's not allowed. That's not allowed. So yeah, it is one team of dogs from the start to the finish. You are impressive for doing this, but the dogs are way more impressive. Oh yeah. The do- it's all about the dogs and like, yeah, so, people. So how many dogs do you run in the Iditarod? So when, I'm, well, it actually used to be when it first started, 16, it was like as many as you wanted. Oh people really? Run like 20 dogs, which was crazy. Um, but yeah, when I raced my first, I did a rod was in 2016 and we were allowed to have 16 dogs. So I raced with a full team of 16 dogs. And then I raced again in 2020 the rules have changed and 14 dogs is now the maximum that you can have on a team. 
And so you ran 14. So I ran 14. And uh, if a dog gets tired, you said you could put them in their sled, they could rest up. Uh, if a dog gets injured or yeah. hurts a yeah. foot or something, you have to retire them and then just roll on with 13. Yeah. So basically, if something were to happen and I was out on the trail, I would yeah just take that dog from my team, put him in my sled, carry him to the next checkpoint. There's a team of veterinarians at every checkpoint. Yep. That's what I understand. And if we're resting there, they're going to come and, and check all of our dogs. Which so is like really if, cool. if people are familiar with like marathons, as you run a marathon, you know, there's check stations where there's a table full of water glasses and stuff and people making sure, or maybe even more similarly it would be like long mountain trail runs where there's checkpoints where people can get water and there's probably a, a, a doctor of some sort there if something needs to be taken care of uh, along the Iditarod trail as well there's some checkpoints um, are there mandatory stops yeah so there's um, one 24-hour mandatory layover which is actually included into our finishing time of the race all of our rest time is included so when I say like when you, you say to, eight days, well, that's everything. Yeah. Like, it takes eight days to get to the finish line. Wow. Um, so yeah, one 24 hour mandatory layover, which we can take at any checkpoint anywhere you want. We want to, uh, and then there's two eight hour mandatory layovers. One of them, uh, is going to be somewhere on a village on the Yukon river. Okay. And the other one will be in white mountain, which is the, the, basically the last true checkpoint, um, there's another checkpoint safety uh, about 20 miles outside of Nome, but most people just go through safety because they're pretty much done with the race. So, um, and yeah, at the white mountain checkpoint, uh, we actually all get drug tested. I was going to ask about this. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there would be some advantage to probably taking a bunch of speed or something yeah. to stay, stay up stay for, awake. for a week. Yeah. Exactly. Do they we, drug test dogs? They do. Really? Yeah. And it can be randomly throughout the race. It usually happens at the beginning and, and it always happens at the end. Is anybody caught? I mean, does it a thing? There has been some issues. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> That's dark. You should be ex, you should be excommunicated from the community for drugging dogs. Don't yeah. drug yourself disqualified from the race. You drug an animal, <laughs> I think you should just be kicked out forever. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. Uh, I mean, I don't, there hasn't been a lot of issues, but there has been issues, which is why they have those rules in place to prevent that from happening. But. So you gotta, you gotta take a couple stops along the way. Um, what is your preferred, how long will you run your dogs before you stop? So the mandatory rests are nothing close to the amount of actual rest that we need to take. Those dogs um, can do more. No, no, they're we we need to rest them a lot. Oh, oh, oh! I see. Yeah. So actually, we're uh, when I'm when I'm racing, I'll just kind of give you like a, a day. Um, so I would, it, I we'll just we'll just go with times. Um, I, I'll generally run for like five to six hours with my team of dogs. And how fast are you going? It depends on the snow condition. Yep. It depends on the terrain. Yep. Generally speaking, we're going to average somewhere between nine and or between eight and ten miles per hour. And are you standing? Oh, yeah, you can't run ten miles an hour for very long, probably. Correct. Yeah, so I'm I'm standing on the runners of the sled. Uh, I have a little kind of seat set up behind me on my sled, so I can sit down. If we're on really nice, you know, if we're cruising down the Yukon, taking that, I can just sit down. Um, okay, but if we're going uphill at any point and the dogs are going slow enough that I could keep up with them, I'm going to jump off and run because that's going to help time. them out. Yeah, it's going to save it's going to save some calories. It's going to help them out. So if we're moving slow enough that I can help them, I'm going to. The rest of the time, I carry ski poles, and I'm just ski poling 
just constantly just while you're standing on the runners correct yeah i kind of lean against the handle of the sled and you're like i'm part of i'm helping too boys yep are they all and boys I, or girls too it's both yeah, yeah okay. it's, it's like a, a good mixture um you know my first team was about 50 50 in 2020 i think i i actually only had two girls on my team do you cut them the board do you the yeah boys? um not all of them um the kennel that i that i work work with you know the Every pretty much everyone's doing their own breeding program. Yeah. So you know the, the you need the nuts on them for that. The yeah. Turns out. And there's a lot of debate, you know, on if if it's advantageous to have. A little oh yeah. Same with the lion hunting community. Yeah. I I don't really know. I mean, I think that the, I don't either, man. Yeah. It's it's hard to say. I I I know for sure that the neutered males are a lot easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. But uh, okay, sorry, I got you off track. So you, a normal day, you you'll run them for. Five, six hours. Yeah, five, six hours. And, you know, it might end up being more. I've done longer runs for sure. I'll do like eight-hour runs. A lot of variables. On an eight-hour run, uh, I'll probably stop two or three times to give the dog snack breaks throughout the run. And, nice. Uh, prior to the start of the race, we ship all of our supplies out to these different checkpoints, these different villages, so we can just resupply as we go. Mostly what I'm shipping out is dog food. Um, obviously, I'm shipping personal food out as well. But yeah, so the dog, the dogs will be eating, you know, snacks will be like salmon. Whoa. Uh, Smoked salmon, cooked salmon? No, no. It's just, just raw salmon. Uh, Wow. Yeah. That's the best frozen raw salmon. And then just uh, a chunk of fish, just a chunk of fish, um, or beef, beef fat. Uh, I do a lot of like turkey skins. If it's super cold, we'll give them more, um, kind of fattier, more fat. And then warmer would be like salmon, not nearly as fatty, but actually has a lot of moisture so it's going to help with hydration hydration yeah um so yeah a bunch of snack breaks and then after let's say six hour run i'm going to stop and rest the dogs depending on my schedule if i have an older dog team and i'm trying to race competitively i would probably rest like you know it's just it's just going to depend on how difficult that previous run was but um anywhere from like three to six hours and uh, what does that look like? Are you unleash on taking them all off the sled? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop my sled, kind of pull it over off the trail. Um, if I can, I'll actually like take it way off. I'll just have the dogs run off yeah. well off the trail and, and kind of get away so we can have better rest. Um, I'll stop the sled. Uh, we carry snow hooks, which are basically like parking brakes. Anchor. Yeah. yeah. It's like an anchor. You pop into the snow and I carry one. I carry, I carry two. I, I put one in the in the snow next to the sled. I'll take the other one and attach it to the front of the gang line. Clip it on there. Can't go forward or backwards. Correct. Um, so then it's just like a stretched out line that dogs are on. And they're all attached to the back of their harness by a short line called the tug line, which is what they're they're pulling, mm-hmm. pulling from. So I'll disconnect that tug line, clip that to their collar. It's now their leash. Mm. Um, so, and then I, I'll kind of work my way back to the sled. Every, basically every time I go to the front, I want to be doing something on the way there and on the way back. Um, I try to be as efficient as humanly possible for making, your, for your own, uh, energy conservation and for times conservation, yeah, everything. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You want to conserve as much as you can cause it's a, it's a really long race and, um, yeah, just want to maximize efficiency. So yeah, I'll come back to the sled. We all carry a cooker, which is a required piece of gear uh that that everyone carries i think this part's fascinating yeah that's so that's what we use for melting snow for water right um obviously when it's negative 20 or 30 there's not a lot of running water so it's weird how that works yeah it is weird well 
a lot of a lot of solid water. So explain to me the cooker. So the cooker is basically um, the one I've been using most recently. It's like kind of like a box. Um, I'd say like 16 inches across. Like aluminum. Uh, actually, I'm using titanium now. Oh wow, you yeah. fancy. <laughs> yeah, keep it light. Um, and in the bottom of this box is like a, a metal pan. Let's basically say it's like the size of a pie pan. Okay. In there, I have a piece of, uh, of, of wicking material. It's kind of similar to insulation, like fiberglass insulation. Okay. And for fuel, I, I carry heat, like the ethyl alcohol that you'd put in your, your the gas. The brand heat. Yeah. Like heat. the little, the little red plastic. Yeah. I use the yellow stuff, but yeah, same idea. And this, that's the stuff that you would put in a fuel tank to get water out of your gas. Correct. Yeah. It's just ethyl alcohol. So that's what I use for fuel. So I'll dump, um, I'll dump three bottles of that into the pan in the bottom. Okay. Drop a match in, get a fire going. And then I have another, another pan that kind of sits into the, the bigger, the bigger pan, like the actual structure of the cooker. And I fill that full of snow, set it on there. It has a lid and I start melting snow. Wow. And it takes about 20 minutes. Uh, it's three gallons of wow. water. And I just, as, as the snow melts down, I keep on adding more snow, melt it down. And you I got have, a little bowl for each dog or one yeah, bowl you walk yep. around with or. Yeah, I have, I have, uh, I usually carry like probably 25 to 30 bowls just cause sometimes they get a little chewed up. Um, God, I can see where like, you know, the ultralight stuff is so popular in our, our mountaineering and hunting communities. Yeah, it's, it's gotta the be the same. It's yeah. Totally the same. Um, yeah, the dog bowls are very thin, very lightweight. Uh, so, and again, when it is really, really cold and the dogs are like, you know, eating on them aggressively, then sometimes they can crack just cause it, it's cold, yeah. cold plastic. So, uh, yeah, I always carry some extras, but, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll boil some water. My personal food is usually just va- I just vacuum seal home cooked meals that I'll make prior or, or friends of mine will make prior to the, the race and we'll yeah, vacuum boil them everything. up. Yeah. Freeze it. I'll, I'll squeeze them down really thin. So they're like squished into a vacuum seal bag and they're like half an inch or maybe a little bit more thick. That's then, how I like packaging a burger. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. They stack easier in the freezer. And they thaw out quicker. They thaw out quicker. So I'll just drop one of those into my cooker, into that hot water. When it boils, I have a hot meal for myself. Mm-hmm. I have hot water. Um, I carry a cooler, which is what I mix up a meal for the dogs with. And in that cooler, I'm going to put a bunch of frozen meat. I'll dump that boiling water on the frozen meat to thaw it out for the dogs. Then I kind of have like this soup Mm-hmm. of frozen meat and it's warm and then i'll add a bunch of kibble which is really where they're going to be getting most of their calories this uh, is dog the dog food yeah the dog food um just it's hard to compete with the amount of calories you can get in kibble hmm. um and yeah i mean there's there's a lot in fat there's a lot in not as much in meat but you know definitely in fat and so the end the end result's kind of like a, a stew exactly so they're getting a lot of water when they're getting that kibble because kibble is, yeah. you know, it's like cereal. It's going to dehydrate you. It's going to absorb water. And so, yeah, you want to counteract that by, by getting it wet water. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, then I'll feed the dogs, uh, prior to that, the dogs are all, all wear booties when we're racing, whenever we're doing kind of any long distance running. I have found those booties before <laughs> out and along the Iditarod trail in different parts of Alaska. Sometimes they'll I guess they'll kick yeah. them off. Yeah, it, it does something. happen. And there's, you know, there's a team that goes behind the race and they pick up everything uh, in case that does happen. Um, but 
yeah, sometimes there, there's some out there still. So, but yeah, and that's just to, pre- to pre- prevent pad wear. Um, yeah. Depending on the temperatures, the snow can actually be pretty abrasive, almost like sandpaper. Sure. If it's super cold. So that's just kind of prevent that kind of stuff from happening. So uh, there are conditions where I would probably not booty, maybe warmer conditions where the snow isn't. You think you they know. can run faster without them or? Yeah, I think that they can. I think that. The, the, well, I know that the dogs prefer running without them. You know, they'll they'll step right into the booties, but they prefer being barefoot. Yeah, I could imagine if I put those on Sphinx, he would walk around all high step and yeah. try to chew and, them off. And the sled dogs, I mean, we're doing it all the time, so they get a little used normal. To um, so yeah, I'll take the booties off. I'll make a meal for the dogs. Give the dogs a meal. Have a meal for myself. Uh, I carry a bale of straw if yep. I'm camping out between checkpoints, and that's what I use for bedding for the dogs. Mm-hmm. If I'm staying in a checkpoint, I'll get a bale of straw there and just use it at the checkpoint. Um, a lot of the checkpoints are nice because they have hot water there for us, so I don't have to... Don't have to boil stuff. Yeah, I don't have to melt snow. Um, and yeah, for myself, I just carry a thin foam pad that I sleep on and a winter sleeping bag. You don't even take a tent? Too. Nope. Too heavy. God... Um, and what time of the year is the Iditarod? Uh, it starts the first Saturday of March, which is actually, I mean, there's, so there's a lot more sunlight at that point up here. Um, but it can still be brutally cold. It can be negative 50. And so all the dogs get a, a drink, they get some feed, they get some bedding, get a rest. Get a rest. Um, and then, yeah, and then I'll get up. I'll usually sleep for like an hour and a half, get up, uh, get my cooker going again. Uh, melts more snow are you making coffee for yourself i you know i have um a lot of times so i I carry a like a three liter thermos yeah and i'll just fill that with hot water at a a checkpoint yep and that way i just have enough water for even if i'm going like 100 miles between checkpoints wow that's just like what i'm gonna have for that leg of the race uh on the yukon quest that other long distance race that the checkpoints are much farther apart there's some that were like 210 miles apart Jeez. so you're you know really way out there so then i would then i would be melting snow for myself as well yeah yeah um and taking like three or three or four even layovers between checkpoints how long did it take you to complete your first edit rod so i want to say it was like 11 days yeah 11 days like three hours or something i don't really remember i should remember Sounds that. fast man i mean that's averaging like 100 miles a day it, yeah. it, that's that feels like a lot that feels like a really long day of snowmobiling and yeah. I can't, that's not a team of dogs that's <laughs> a yeah. motor yeah for sure. that's an engine yeah so we're yeah averaging probably a little more than 100 miles a day because again that finishing time is calculating all of our rest as well yeah um so and my yeah my first year i kind of bypassed a little bit of the story but yeah i i ended up Going to work uh, with this guy named Martin Boozer. He's a four-time Iditarod champion. Uh, he's raced now. He's raced 39 times in the Iditarod. Oh, my gosh. Holds the record for doing the most. Most of them. Um, when I was working in Juneau, I had worked with some people that had worked for him. And so that's kind of how I got into racing in the Iditarod was I went and worked at his kennel. Through Martin. Through Martin. And I raced a team of his young dogs. And basically to give them some experience to give myself some experience. Um, he basically, he basically mentored me and you know, how to, how to race. And that's cool. I worked for him for two years, basically training to race in the Iditarod. 
you have to qualify, you have to accumulate. Um, actually, you do. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, uh, race in three different races at the Iditarod. Record. I can't, I can't go do it. <laughs> well, you, you can, <laughs> you can do it. I'm going to do it with all walkers. <laughs> That'd be actually pretty cool. It would not work you, out. No, you could do it. They, their feet would probably fall apart, though. So you qualified. Yeah, so you have to do three different races. The Iditarod recognizes, and most of them are like 150 to 300-mile races. So I did like a 200-mile race, a 300-mile race, and then I did a 440-mile race out of Kotzebue, which was pretty cool. That was probably the best like experience for me because I was way up in like the Arctic Circle. Oh, wow. And I was alone. I went up there by myself with this team of dogs was up there for like a week. I did a couple, a couple of training runs out on the sea ice, just like kind of winging it. God. Um, and yeah, then I did this 440 mile race. I ended up getting sixth place, but Martin gave me his team of, of dogs that he had already completed the Iditarod with that year. So I had a really well seasoned dogs, well-trained team of dogs. You know, I was still learning, learning stuff, but yeah, it's a 440 mile race. And I think I did it in like three, just over three days. So wow, pretty fast, fast paced race, really You're, long. You were runs. good at this. Well, you I had mean, good just, dogs. And you, you were good. I at had it, good though. training. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had, I learned a lot from, from Martin. I mean, he taught me pretty much everything I know. Um, and yeah, the, I mean that race in particular, the, the, the runs are long. There's a lot of like 70, 80, 90 mile runs between checkpoints. Mm-hmm. And, but because the race, because you're racing, you know, the race is over so quickly you can kind of do these longer runs and it's fine you couldn't do that on the iditarod because it's a thousand mile race so yeah i'm generally running like 50 yeah 50 miles at a time on the iditarod um anyway i'm getting a little distracted here that's okay but yeah anyway so uh back to like a checkpoint routine or like a rest routine um i'll take a nap uh get up i'll get my cooker going melt a bunch of of snow uh, put a bunch of meat in my cooler again, and I'll basically give the dogs a soup before mm-hmm. I get going. So they're getting some calories, they're getting some flavor, um, and they're getting water yeah. before we go on our next leg. And then I'll head out, do my next run, and just kind of cycle through that routine for 10 days. God, it sounds exhausting. Yeah, it is. It sounds exhausting. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just mind-blowing to me how, uh, how much endurance you have to do this but even more so these dogs they're they're incredible i mean that's that's kind of like why i i did it it was because i i don't know watching them work and watching their enthusiasm for what they do is like it's addicting anybody who uh spends their life with working dogs whether it's with cattle or labs duck hunting or or dog sledding or mountain lion hunting. Anybody who spends time around true working dogs, I believe feels the exact same way of what you just described. Yep. Like that's, that's the addiction. That's the passion. Yep. We've coexisted with canines for what? 15, 20,000 years or something. Yeah. I think there's evidence up here of, of yeah, 10 to 15,000. And <clears throat> yeah, I, I feel like it's a, a human element. There's like, it's it's weird to me when people don't have dogs. Yep. I feel like we're supposed to have dogs. Yeah, I feel sad for those people. Yeah, me too, man. Even more, I feel sad for the dogs that shouldn't be owned by some people in apartments and cities and stuff. Yeah. How did that feel completing the Iditarod? Uh, it was it was great. Pretty I mean, cool. Like 
wow. I, I did this. this. Yeah. It was pretty it's a cool. monumental thing. Yeah. Just completing it. And so I, again, was racing a young team of dogs. So actually every dog on my team was just under two years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I had a, I had a true, what we would call a puppy team. <laughs> I, when I was working for Martin, I worked with this group of dogs basically from the time they were puppies until I'm still working with them. And, you know, when I go and help out at the kennel, I still get to, you were invested in these dogs. Yeah. They were a huge part of my life. And then I, I took them down to Juno and ran dog setting tours throughout the summer with them. Then I would bring them back up here, train them in the winter. And then, yeah, went and raced in the Iditarod with them, which was just a really, really, really cool experience. And yeah. doing it with, you know, a lot of people will run a, a young dog team, but they're going to have a couple mentors on the team, a couple dogs that have completed the Iditarod. That seems times. like there's some value in that probably. Yeah, for sure. But I did it with dogs that had none of them had ever raced before. The whole team, <laughs> including you, is greenhorns. Bunch of, bunch of tin horns. And you all did it. Um, it's cool. Yeah, and that, that was a challenge. And, you know, there was a couple dogs on my team. Uh, in particular, a dog uh, named K2 and another dog named Beans. They were kind of like my star, go-to leaders. Star athletes. Star athletes. Um, Beans got a sore shoulder, so I ended up having to leave him uh, about halfway through the race. I, I dropped him off at a checkpoint, and he flew home. So there's places along the way if your dog is hurt or injured, uh, there's veterinarians on site, and they're yep. immediately taken care of and ultimately flown back to Anchorage or wherever. Yes, exactly. Yep. Okay. They'll come back here. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he was fine two days later, but at the time it was like, I can't continue racing with him. He was, you know, he, he had a bum leg. Yeah. He was sore. So it was just like, you, you're going home, buddy. Hard Sorry. to say what happened. I mean, just tore, tore a muscle. Just pulled a muscle. Yeah. Just pulled a muscle. Yeah. Um, and that happens. And yeah, yeah it happens well, to us. It happens to us. It happens to me all the time. <laughs> So you've done the Iditarod twice now. Yep. And in between that, I raced in the Yukon Quest. Yeah. So. Tell me about, let's talk about the Yukon Quest because I, my limited understanding of all of this is solely from you, but you've been quick to say the Yukon Quest, that's the, that's the more hardcore race. Yeah. And it was for me. Um, I don't want to say it's like that all the time. And I, in fact, that race doesn't even exist anymore. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Just because of like... too dangerous no no it's not too dangerous there's so the race runs from fairbanks in alaska to whitehorse in the yukon territory and there's so there's a canadian side of the race and there's an alaskan side of the race and there's two different countries Mm -hmm. working on making this race happen Mm. because of the pandemic and border restrictions the race quit you know, basically just, just, it just stopped happening. Ceased to exist. Hopefully it, it comes back. Yeah. And now there's like separate races that, ha- that ah. take place. There's a little bit more going on there. There's some, you know, financial issues and other stuff, um, preventing. Well, tell me about the good old days. Yeah. Anyway, um, the race itself, again, a thousand mile race. I think it's, I think I raced in the 35th, I, yeah, 35th Yukon quest in 2018. Um, and so I, I it's ended a younger up, race than the Iditarod. Yeah. A little bit younger. Um, but it was cool. It's, you know, it's, it's a little bit smaller. You're going to little cabins along the Yukon river and, uh, it's, it's beautiful. I, what makes it more extreme than that Iditarod? So instead of starting the first weekend of March, it starts the first weekend of February. Oh, and you're in Fairbanks. Oh, and you're heading North. 
And Sounds like a good time to see the Northern Lights. Great time to see the Northern Lights. Great time to freeze your ass off. Man. Okay. So it's just more rugged weather, less daylight. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, you know, there's still a pretty good amount of daylight, but, um, when I raced in 2018, it was brutally cold. Ooh. I had left Fairbanks and it was negative 45. It did not get above negative like 30 for pretty much the entirety of the race. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, it, it did at the end, but, um, the coldest it got, I got to one of the checkpoints and, and the checkpoint that I went to was probably 15 feet above a, or off of a cut bank above the river that I was running on. Yeah. And it was negative like 60 at the checkpoint. Oh. And I was running on the river, which is again, 15 feet lower. And when it's that cold and there's that much of an inversion going on, um, it's, it's deadly cold. On the yeah. River. Um, so it was just a, a very, very, very cold race. And that's why I just a brutal experience. Yeah. And, and the, again, the, the legs between checkpoints when you, you know, I'm going like I'm camping two or three times between checkpoints. So yeah. I have to carry an incredible amount of gear. It's a lot more work. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Um, so I worked for a good friend of mine. His name is Matt Failer. He races in the Iditarod. Uh, he worked with Martin Boozer prior to uh, my time working with Martin Boozer. He raced a young team of dogs for Martin, just like I did. And I worked with him in Juno, so we, we kind of had a good relationship. And he's like, hey, man, he, he started his own kennel. He's like, hey, I got a group of young dogs that I want to I wanna have them run in the Yukon Quest if you're interested. Would you so mush them? I was like, hell yeah, I'll do that. So I worked with him all winter. Um, I did a 300 mile race, uh, called the copper basin 300 out of Glen Allen with that team, just as kind of a training run, um, trained all winter with them. Um, and yeah, then raced in the, in the quest with them. And I was, I had like a pretty conservative schedule. So I was rest because the dogs were two and a half years old. I was, yeah, you were, you were trying to win it necessarily. Yeah. So I, I was kind of taking my time and because of that my dogs ended up just doing really well. Ah. Yeah. We, we were, we were, we were Turned resting. out to be a good approach yeah, to it in those sure. harsh conditions. Yeah. We were resting a lot and I had trained, you know, I had trained a lot with them. I had trained very consistently with them. Um, so I don't know. I, th- I think, I think I went into the race with like a good plan. Yeah. Um, so I rested a lot and, you know, I, I actually started, I was the first person to start the race. So I was in the very front of the pack. Why was that? How do they decide? Uh, it's it's all a draw. So there's a, a pre-race banquet. Everyone mm-hmm. draws a draws a number, and and then off you go. Is there that much? Is there a big advantage to that? You know, it it depends. Uh, I mean, there is a little bit of advantage. So if you draw a low number, you're starting in the beginning of the race. Um, that's how our time difference is made up. So whoever gets to the finish of the race is the true winner. But everyone's starting the race two minutes apart. So if you start the race in the very beginning, you're going to make up for all of that time at your halfway point during the race. So let's say you start with bib number one, mm-hmm. you're going to have two minutes added to your rest for every team behind you. So you're going to get more rest on the trail. I see other people will, um, but I that see. way it evens out. And again, whoever gets to the finish line is the true winner. So there's some advantage to being in the front and it, it really d- is going to depend on the conditions. Yeah. Sometimes there's snow conditions where you're able to ride on top of a layer of crust and you're going to be cruising along. People behind you will start 
breaking through that crust and the dogs will start running through kind of softer snow oh, which is you're because you're breaking trail you're you get the fresh well you're on this layer of crust but then there's other places where you're but breaking... behind you behind you you broke it up exactly. is that what you're saying yeah 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 you kind, kind of, of breaking through and, and it's yeah. like sugary snow and, and then there's other places where it's the exact opposite it's a bunch of soft fluffy snow and whoever's in front is breaking the trail and then if you're behind but them, it's a lot nicer it's a lot nicer so it yeah. just completely depends there's a lot of advantage to staying in the front of the race if you're i'll just be win. in the middle yeah you try to <laughs> best of both like you yeah. can stay in front of the middle and, and closer yeah. towards the front of the pack you're going to probably do better yeah um but yeah with my with my team i basically went from being in the front kind of fell back quite a ways. I think there was like 28 participants in the race that year. I don't exactly remember. How many participants are in the Iditarod uh, my, average? My first year, there was 86 teams racing. Oh, wow. And I think I finished 51st. And then wow. uh, in 2020, there was 60-something, and I got 20th place. Um, so there's about 40 in the Yukon Quest, you said? No, there's there. I think there was 20-something that year. 20. Oh, wow, okay. Um, so it's a, it's a lot smaller field. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it was super cold race. A lot of people had issues because it was so cold. Um, you know, the dogs all have, again, booties. They have fleece leggings that we put on them um, just to keep their, their legs warmer. Uh, also, as they're running, frost can start to build up on kind of the back of their forearm. Sure. And as they're running, their wrist will flex. The hair on the back of their wrist will kind of get stuck to the hair on the back of their forearm. So when they straighten their wrist, it can pull that hair out and... and so that's why we're, again, we're running with leggings to prevent that kind of stuff from yeah. happening. Um, also again, if it's really cold, we're trying to keep their temperature a little bit higher. And when it's that cold, it's totally fine to put a bunch of gear on the dogs and we carry jackets for the dogs. Uh, in fact, I carry two different types of jackets. I'll have like a thinner non-insulated wind jacket, and then I'll have a thicker, like puffy Primaloft insulation jacket that the dogs wear. Yeah. These dogs are well loved and oh, yeah. well taken care of. Yeah. And you guys are a team and uh I would compare it to like if you see like high end thoroughbred horse racing, like those horses live a better life than I do and are very well <laughs> taken care of and fed. I don't know about that Pete. <laughs> I've had some I've had some rough episodes. Um so how many people on average don't finish the Iditarod or totally year depends. to year? Yeah. Totally but not depends. everybody does. Um, yeah. I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be years where 50% of the people won't finish. Wow. And there's going to be years where almost everyone finishes. How about the Yukon Quest the year you did it? 50% dropout. Wow. Yep. And you finished. I did. Yeah. And, and actually about halfway through the race again, because I was resting a lot. Yeah. My team just started cruising past people and like they, they were just turned like, it on yeah at mile like 450 they were just like screaming to go and everybody else was shutting down well people yeah people had pushed maybe a little bit harder than me um you know it was really cold i was super excited to be out there i was having a blast even though it was like negative 60 um i just was yeah really thrilled to be there and my dogs were i think a lot of times they kind of take on your energy i'm sure yeah and you know so i always try to be really positive and try to have a good time because if i'm having a good time they're having a good time you talk to them uh i try not to actually i what? mean i i do a little bit but i you know a lot of people are like all right guys come on guys let's go and i really don't oh, so is your philosophy if you're talking to them you're telling them to do something though yeah and so i'll use vocal commands to steer the dogs, stop the dogs yeah talk me through some of those yeah so we use um 
the vocal commands for right and left, we'll use the commands G to the right, ha to the left, just the E Is that a worse thing or no? Yeah, people use those commands for like oxen and mules. They've been around for centuries. G, like the letter G, yep, G is e. which way? Uh, to the right. G is right. Ha. Ha. To the left. Left. So, yeah, and that's the E-aw, kind of the E-aw sounds that the dogs pick up on easily and easy for them to differentiate. They're different, yeah. Um, so those are the, those are, and it's single syllable. But so it's, it's and can you uh, like kind of stand on one of the runners and also do that, or are they very much in charge? Completely in charge. Yeah, uh, you, I can you're not steer steering the, this. If the dogs want to go to the right and I steer the sled to the left, we're going to the right. <laughs> okay. But because I'm steering to the left, the sled will probably tip okay. over. Okay. So. G to the right, haw to the left. Yeah. So and then I'll say whoa to stop. Yeah. Um, before I get ready to go, I'll say ready just to know the dogs were about to go. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, we're ready. And then I just use the command all right as a go command so all right say, ready all right and that's that's uh green light pretty much and then and it's kind of that simple um there's a command i'll use if there's like a three-way intersection and i'll i'll just say straight ahead if i wanted to take the middle yeah we're not going right or left we're not going right like or don't, left. okay straight ahead straight ahead yep line Yeehaw, it out straight ahead um and yeah, that's, that's pretty much, those are like the basics right there. And that's, that's kind of all we use. I mean, they all know their own name. So if one of them is goofing off, I'll you just talk like, Hey, to you know, whatever. I'll, I'll yell their name out and tell them to knock it off. And they're like, all right, dad. Uh, my dogs know one command, get that cat, <laughs> get that cat, get that cat. And that turns them. They're like, Oh, oh this is happening. As I let the tailgate down or something, dump the box. They're like, dad's got a track here. Here yeah. we go. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little more basic. Yeah, we don't really teach them to sit or stay or anything, just because they're. I mean, they're they're. Yeah, sitting and staying doesn't sound like it would help you on a thousand mile race. And they, I mean, they completely like once you race a bit with them, they're just completely in their routine. Like as soon as I whip out straw, they just lie down, take a nap. They're they're uh, on auto. Everybody's on autopilot. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, what. What place did you finish the Yukon Quest in? I actually got sixth place. Wow. Yeah, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and how many days just, did it take you? Um, it was about 11 as well. I think just under 11. So the Yukon Quest has similar layovers. There's a there's a few four-hour um, mandatory layovers. And then there's a instead of a 24-hour mandatory layover in the middle of the race, there's a 36-hour mandatory layover. Um, and on the Yukon Quest, you can have handlers which basically come and people help. come help you out yeah so when you hit a break you can go eat and crash so that that can only happen at the halfway point okay of the race they're not allowed to help me with anything except at that along the trail hour layover so they basically would come behind me clean up all the straw and dog crap i left behind oh wow um shitty job anyway they but you <laughs> literally get to, yeah you get to travel uh, you know, the, the trail. So I had two, two friends come and, and they were traveling, traveling with me and it was pretty cool. Tell um, me about, uh, well, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's all right. Tell me about the, the, the gear you wear. So, because you're yeah. stationary, yeah, you're which stationary. if you've ever ridden a horse in cold weather, uh, snowmobiling doesn't really qualify because you have the heat of this engine, you have a heated handlebar and usually a windshield. But if you've ever like ridden a horse in the cold, yeah. You get so cold because you're not moving, you're not doing anything. Uh, and I suppose you're probably more involved with the dog sled, but still 
are subject you're not running like that dog is in front of you the dog's keeping himself warm what kind of gear are you outfitted with yeah and and it that really will depend on the the conditions of course but um i need to bring everything for any conditions yeah kind of like our hunting trips we're yeah. out there for an extended period period of time so i bring rain gear and i bring gear that's going to keep me warm when it's 65 below zero mm. Um, so the boots I wear, uh, are made by a company that unfortunately no longer exists, but, uh, the, the name of the company is Northern Outfitters and it's actually thick foam insulation. It's like an inch and a half thick foam all the way around my foot. The sole of the boot is probably two and a half inches thick with foam and like layers of, of like stacked air. And this looks like a big, like moon boot Giant or something. Moon. Yeah. Yeah. They're enormous, but they have Velcro straps. So I can, you know, if I need to run in them, I can really suck them tight and kind of hold that two and a half inch piece of sole to the bottom of my foot. Yeah. Um, again, most of the time I'm ski poling if I can't, if I can't run. So I, I try not, I mean, I can run in those boots, but, uh, and then I wear like a base layer, you know, wool base layer. Uh, I'll wear a th- uh, kind of thicker fleece pant. You're wearing f- you're wearing first light right now. <laughs> yeah, you probably got a the, closet full of different base layers. I right? have all sorts of crap. <laughs> some fleece, some fleece lined base layer on yeah, the bottom. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll wear like a wool base layer, then fleece pants, mm-hmm. um, and then depending on the temperature, I have like a really thick down pair of they're like ultralight down pant mountaineering pants that I would wear over my fleece pants. Who makes those? Uh, Western Mountaineering. Okay. Um, and then I have actually another set of thick fleece pants made by a company called Atmosphere Mountain Sports in Laramie, Wyoming. And I wear those. They're they're really baggy, so I actually wear them on top of my my down pants. Yeah. And then I have a, a wind system again made by this company, uh, Northern Outfitters. Like a hard shell. It's well, y- yeah. It's kind of like you know you know the whites that people wear when they're hunting for whatever up in the mountains yeah super like a, light windproof material okay and it just goes right over my fleece pants they, they weigh nothing they pack down really small yeah and they're they're white you know i just pop those on and that completely stops the wind bet you warm um, up quick that yeah up. so so that's like the maximum i would wear on my my lower body upper body oh. is going to be the same uh base layer fleece and then i have like a kind of thicker um prima loft insulation parka and then I have a giant down parka with a wolf and wolverine rough. That yes. On top. And a wind system I can put over that if I need to. When I was up in the Arctic last spring, I got, I showed up with all the nice gear I had. And the boys that took me out, I call them boys, they're younger than me. But they were badass Arctic outdoorsmen. Um, they loaned me one of their homemade parkies, they called them. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Same, the white things. The yeah. white thing, yeah. And it had a big wolverine trim around the hood. They gave me elbow deep wolf hide mittens. What kind yeah. of gloves are you wearing? Um, I've kind of changed it up over the years. I wore some black diamond mitts for a while that kind of I wear so I wear like a fleece glove. Um there it's a company. like a base layer it's type like a, glove. Well it's a there's a brand called Heatlock. They make gloves pretty cheaply i think you can get a pair for like seven bucks that's great so i send a pair to every checkpoint oh you you oh i rotate, rotate them out. yeah because they'll get I, if they get a little bit wet it just freezes on there it's yeah melting because you're out get some cold. freshies so pop on some freshies and then 
my mitts would go over those and I, I could wear those down. You know, if I'm being active, I can wear them down to zero degrees, just those gloves. Um, if I'm just hanging out and then standing there in the cold, I'll pop the mitts on and I'm good to like 30 below. Um, started wearing a pair of mitts made by this company called trophy. I can't remember where they're from somewhere in the Midwest, but I, they're giant, giant mitts. Are they down? Um, they're actually, I think they're Prima loft insulation, but they're freaking huge just a big insulated mitt like yeah. it looks like an oven mitt or yeah, something yeah. yeah exactly and they come like all the way up to my elbow yeah you know, same as those I'm, I'm gonna make you some beaver mittens hell yeah i've dude. been trapping beavers lately really yeah yeah i've been getting into beaver trapping i'm trying to figure out what to do with all these beaver pelts because they're not worth any money <laughs> <laughs> dude beaver mitts are awesome yeah it'd be yeah. kind of cool to get you set up with some of those yeah i'd love that um so uh, yeah i wear i wear those and then uh, you wear goggles I only wear goggles if I'm in a blizzard. Yeah. And that's it. And then I, I sewed up a bunch of like neck gaiters for myself. Hmm. So they, they kind of come down like a, I don't know, bandana bandit kind of thing in the front, in the front. Yeah. So it covers up my, my neck and like drops down onto my zipper line. Yeah. Um, just to keep my, my, like the front of my face warm and I'll pull those right up to right below my eye. If it's yeah. really cold and get the goggle right over the edge of that. Yeah. And then my hat comes down to my eyebrows. So it's really just a slit. And, and actually, I mean, if I have my wolf and Wolverine rough up, yeah. it doesn't, you know, the, the wind doesn't get to my face. Like you, you are buried in that. Stuff. Yeah. You're buried yeah. in it. I mean, there's, there's something about real fur that, Oh, nothing else can do. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I thought I took the nicest mittens I had up to the Arctic this past spring and every like 30 minutes, I, even with my heated handlebar, I had to stop and like shake my hands out and get some blood back in my fingers. And finally one of the guides was like, I got an extra pair of wolf mittens. Just take these. And I was like, okay, I'll try these. Never had to stop again to warm my hands up. (laughs) Yeah. Nature makes some pretty fine insulation project products. Yeah. It's good stuff. Um, yeah, it, I mean, there's, there's really nothing that works better. And so, yeah, goggles I'd bring, but I don't really wear that much. Don't use that much. So hopefully I don't ever have to use them. That's kind of the plan. Is there any money in it? What, what do you get if you win the Iditarod? So it depends, uh, kind of on corporate sponsorship of the race, how many people enter the race. Um, winner of Iditarod can take home somewhere between 50 to 70 grand. That's nice. That's a nice check. Yeah. It'll cover most of half the your dog food <laughs> yeah exactly like it'll cover most of the costs of your dog food for a kennel but you know so it's really it's really like a labor of love yeah yeah you know people aren't doing it because they can to get rich if they wanted to get rich they would probably have to do something else yeah it's not it's not the greatest way to make money so what do you think uh you know we said that the heyday of sled dogs was pre-bush plane um, and now it's a bit of a nostalgic thing really at, at best. And yeah, there's a lot of tourism, that's a lot of I've, tourism. I was going to ask you, what, what's the future of all this? I wish I knew. Yeah. Um, you know, the racing has, seems like there's, you know, over the years there's been less interest, um, in it. It's just, seems like it's kind of dying a little bit. Um, so, you know, we're, we're running dog sledding tours to, kind of hopefully promote interest in dog sledding. Yeah. Um, I feel like we need some big brands yeah. to sponsor the sponsor industry. some of the mushers and yeah. to like amplify it. Cause I think it's so, I think there's such a story to tell 
like Arcteryx or something needs to be like, hey, one of our we just, one of our signed athletes is this badass musher. Yeah, I, I like, mean that. Yeah, that'd be some cool. great exposure for the sport for sure. Um, yeah, a lot of companies just because you're working with animals, they they want to stay away from it. That's especially, too bad. Especially with like dogs, they're like, hey, you're you're forcing these dogs to nope. run a thousand miles. They they're like no, these dogs they really want to. These dogs really want to. Anyway, I mean, there's a lot of debate over it. There's a lot of people that don't like it, and that's why a lot of companies do not, you know, put their money towards towards that. That's too bad. Fortunately, yeah, I, it's too bad. It, and I live my life with working dogs and anybody that does knows that it would be a sin to not let these dogs do it. They love this. Absolutely. They want to do this. They are born to do this. Yep. Yeah. That's um, all they want to do. And nobody loves them more than us. Like yep. the people working with them. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. We wouldn't be doing it if we didn't. Uh, I heard when we were out in our last moose camp, uh, sad news about the death of a very famous Iditarod musher. Yeah, Lance Mackey. Lance Mackey. Tell me about him. Um, Lance was uh, yeah, incredible musher. Uh, his dad raced for him. Um, but yeah, kind of grew up in the mushing, mushing world, and he raced i don't know how many times he raced in the iditarod but he was actually a four-time champion of the race he won the iditarod four times yep wow he he also won the yukon quest i want to say four times as well um i'm actually not 100 percent sure on that so don't don't quote me on it but he was winning the yukon quest the same years that he was winning the iditarod so he would win that race and then a month later he would go win the wow same team of dogs which was super cool it's pretty legendary completely yep but yeah, he had a probably lot. like the biggest name, the most known name in, uh, at least for me, I, I can't name a lot of mushers, but I certainly knew who Lance, Lance Mackey was. Yeah. Yeah. He had a long battle with, with throat cancer and, and, uh, it sounds like I did, I just heard about it recently as well, but, um, yeah. Finally, yeah. Finally. Sad, sad to lose a, a, a mushing icon like that. He certainly paved the way for someone like you a little bit. I'm sure he, uh. Definitely you knew who he was. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, uh, do you think you'll ever do a uh, thousand mile race again? You know, we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I would like to, but I'm kind of focusing more on guiding now and kind of getting, getting into that a bit more. Yeah. The, the hunting guiding is definitely becoming a, a more full-time gig for you. Yeah. So I, yeah, that's kind of what I've been focused on. Uh, it's hard for me to do both. It would be really difficult for me to, to train a team of dogs to race. Yeah. Do what I'm doing now. Um, we'll see. I don't want to say no, but I would, I would love to do it. It's probably, you know, if it happens, it's going to be when I'm old or old, <laughs> when I'm retired. We're, we are old. We're getting, <laughs> actually, we, I feel really old. Yeah. Gosh. Some <laughs> days are harder than others, man. Yeah, I'm feeling better now that I slept in a bed and took a shower, but. Yeah, what a luxury that is after a season of sleeping in the rain. (laughs) Well, I think you got an incredible story, man, uh, from your sheltered conservative beginning on the East Coast to leading a team of dogs across the Arctic ice and a thousand miles across Alaska and now big game professional big game hunting guide. I think you've really done some some cool stuff with your life, man. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 
I'm trying to. Namely, I think the greatest accomplishment is lead guitarist of Ocular Fluid, um, but that's a, I'm biased. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about incorporating metal banjo into the band. Let's talk about that. Yeah. We got We got some work to do. All right, Tim, I love you. You're a good friend. Thank you so much for talking with us, man. Heck yeah, man. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Peter Panda Podcast. It means so much to me that you've let us be part of your day. If you've enjoyed listening, please do me a huge favor and leave a review and give a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also share the podcast with your hunting buddies. And until next time, go get outside. <laughs>